You can turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. We're going to be finishing up the book of Judges today. And if you're just visiting us uh, today, uh, just to let you know, this is one strange book, uh, the book of Judges, and it's meant to be so. And what we've found over the last several weeks is that um, as as we read the accounts in the book of Judges, we're left with the impression this is really messed up. Uh, things are really messed up. And uh, when we get to the end of the book of Judges, that is different from chapter 17 um, all the way through chapter 21. There's a, there's a change. There's a difference. And that difference in part is that we're not looking at specific judges anymore. Uh, we're looking at um, sort of history uh, narrative that's going on in Israel. In fact, uh, this happens early in the era of the judges. We know that because in chapter 17 we find mention of Moses' grandson. And what the author of Judges does here is he is putting this at the end of the book of Judges as a great big exclamation point saying, things are really messed up because this is the most messed up portion of a messed up book, a messed up account of what's going on in the nation of Israel. So before I actually get to reading chapter uh, 21, I need to start back with chapter 17. Chapter 17, um, we have uh, an account of a Levite. Um, All of these kind of hang together here at the end of the book of Judges. You won't know what's going on if I don't give you a little of the background. So chapter 17, you have a Levite. The Levites were the tribe where priests would come from. And so we have this account of a Levite, and he is co-opted. He's brought into a family. A family hires him to be their personal priest, uh, which is a little messed up. But then what's really messed up is this Levite is using an idol uh, as part of his worship of the Lord. And uh, so this family sort of has this priest as their lucky rabbit's foot. And uh, the, the uh, members of the tribe of Dan uh, find out about this priest. And so they, uh, they want this priest. And they come and they take him by force from uh, the family, uh, essentially kidnapping him and taking more of the family idols, which again is just messed up that this family had all these idols. And the priest is okay with it because he's got an upgrade in terms of pay and status. He's going to be serving the whole uh, tribe of Dan. And so that's chapter 17 and 18, I believe. Well, then we have this account that leads up to chapter 21. You again have a Levite, and the Levite is traveling through the tribe of Benjamin. And so he is put up at a house for the night. And what ensues is something very similar to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. For those of you who know that account in Genesis, that was a non-Israelite town. And here in Israel, it's so messed up that we have something very similar. And this Levite has a concubine in the case of Genesis. An angel of the Lord intervened and protected Lot. Here in Judges, there's no such protection The concubine is violated. The concubine is killed. And so the Levite, in response, sends a ghastly calling card to every tribe throughout uh, throughout Israel and basically says, this horrible thing has happened in this town of Gibeah. 
in uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and we need to execute justice on this town. They gather together, they come to Benjamin uh, as a military uh, group, and they say to uh, the Benjaminites, you need to uh, allow us to exact justice on this town. And Benjamin says, no. That's messed up. Uh, They're protecting this horrible town. And what ensues is a civil war. And in that civil war, many, many Israelites are killed, both from the 11 tribes that come to fight Benjamin and from Benjamin. In fact, so many people are killed on the side of Benjamin that the only people that are left are 600 men. Everybody else has been slaughtered in the entire tribe of Benjamin, and they're in danger of losing their entire tribe, which is dying out. That's messed up. And so we come to chapter 21, and the remaining 11 tribes uh, kind of come to their senses, and they say, this is not a good situation. We're about to lose a tribe in the tribe of Benjamin. So here we pick up uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel, and they sat there till evening before God, and they lifted their voices, and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early, and they built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all these tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning Uh, concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? Okay, you understand what's happening? They make this rash vow. We've heard of that before in the case of the judge Jephthah. And they say, when they gather together before they fight Benjamin, we will not give our daughters in marriage to any Benjaminite man. Well, there's a problem. There are no women in Benjamin for these 600 men. And the whole tribe of Benjamin is going to just die out if they don't have wives. They're supposed to marry within Israel. What are they going to do? So they made that oath, and they made another oath. And that other oath was any of our 11 tribes... do not come out, any cities that do not come out will be killed if they don't help us in battling Benjamin. Verse 8, and they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah? And behold, no one had come from to, to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men then there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with the male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. 
And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the woman, the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribe of Israel. You got it? So there's this vow that they make. We're going to destroy any town that does not come out to fight with us. Now, that's a rash vow on a number of fronts. We find actually, if you go back to the Deborah account, the Judge Deborah, I think it's in chapter 5 where we have the song of Deborah. There were people, there were, there were tribes and there were groups of tribes or cities that did not come out to help uh, in that particular battle. And they are cursed. Okay, So death is not the only option in uh, this case. But they solved their problem. And that is they kill everybody in this town except for the virgins. And so they've got 400 to go to the Benjaminites. That is messed up. <laughs> so they're very punctilious about keeping their vows. Uh, they have no qualms about destroying a town. But they're lacking 200, right? So they've got 400 women. They need 200 more. How are they going to solve that problem? Then the elders, this is verse 16 of the congregation, said, What shall we do for the wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast, uh, the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us because we did not take For each man of them, his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to the number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived there. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Got it? Problem solved. We need 200 women. Hey, they're having a festival down at Shiloh. We can't give you women from our uh, tribes. That would be in violation of the vow. Just go kidnap them. Okay? Just wait and kidnap them. We won't tell the people from Shiloh what's going on. And so when they complain, we'll say, hey, you are innocent of breaking any vows. And if you have any problems, tough. This is the way we're going to do it, right? This is messed up. <laughs> so that's the end of the book of Judges, except for one more verse that we'll get to in just a second. And so, um, you know, there are people that say, uh, when they look at the book of Judges, that it's not as messed up as it seems in the last few chapters, that in fact, if you really understood how significant it was to save a tribe and how significant it was. They were trying, after all, to keep their vows, and so we really shouldn't 
think of it as negatively as it seems on the surface. It kind of reminds me of a trip that my wife and I took. We went to Europe to visit our daughter who was studying abroad. And so we were visiting the, um, the sanctuary where the end of The Sound of Music was filmed, you know, where Julie Andrews and her character gets married, that, that kind of that big church scene. And so there was this uh, college-age uh, Austrian woman who was leading the tour, and it was a really, frankly, strange church to, to us. Uh, there were statues everywhere, and uh, there's one statue, it was of, uh, of this patron saint of apothecary, and uh, she had big, huge tongs with a big tooth on it, you know, and, and, but that wasn't the strangest thing. The strangest thing was up behind the altar were two skeletons encased in glass. Okay, just imagine right here if we had skeleton number one, skeleton number two in plain sight. And so trying to be kind of culturally sensitive to my uh, tour guide, you know, I said to her, you know, in America, if we had skeletons in our church, we would find that kind of creepy. And she said, in Austria, we find that creepy too. <laughs> right? And what we have in the book of Judges, when we get to the last verse, in fact, we'll highlight some other verses, that the, at the, when this was written, they found this to be messed up. As it says... The problem and the proposed solution in verse 25. <clears throat> in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I'm not just cherry-picking this as a key verse in the book of Judges, because Judges chapter 16, 6 says, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 19.1 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. There's a problem. They did what was right in their own eyes. They were their own authority. They were the dictator of right and wrong to themselves. And what resulted was chaos personally as a society, as the people of God. We need a king. And we don't need just any old king. We need King Jesus. We need a king. There was a, a, an article this week about um, arrests that had happened on one of our schools here in town. And, uh, and evidently more than has been happening in previous years. And the Bay County Sheriff Lieutenant Myron Guilford spoke about it. And he said this, kids have no respect. They don't fear anyone. They think they can make their own rules, right? Doing what's right in their own eyes. They say what they want to say. And then he said, so what's the solution? What's the problem and the solution? They're allowing them to parent themselves and raise themselves. What we have is kids that are raising themselves through social media and computers, and that's pretty much what's ruining our young people's lives right now. Said Guilford, parents, if you know your kids are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in, that's your responsibility to take care of that. Likewise, Israel had no king. And things were just crazy. Some things they were doing that were right and good, and other things were absolutely wrong. And without King Jesus, there is chaos 
There's chaos in my life. There's chaos in the church. There's chaos in the culture around us. We need a king. We need King Jesus. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, uh, you will remember that when it comes to Samuel, uh, that Samuel, who was, by the way, the last judge, uh, Samuel had a problem with the Israelites wanting a king. The problem wasn't specifically that they wanted a king. It was why they wanted the king and the way they wanted the king. And the reason why I say that is because in the law, in the Old Testament, we have provision for kingship in Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15 says, When you come into the land that God, the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Right? So it wasn't wrong to have a king. It was provided for in the law. But God was always to be their ultimate king. Numbers 22. Numbers 23, verse 21. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Deuteronomy 33, 5. The Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered in all the tribes of Israel together. But this king would come, and this king would be specifically from the tribe of Judah. It's interesting, when you look at the book of Judges, the no tribe comes out looking particularly good. But at the beginning of the book of Judges, you have in leadership, Judah. So if any tribe is presented favorably, it's Judah. And we get to the end of the book of Judges, and what tribe is portrayed not particularly favorably? Benjamin. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. And, the tribe, and, and God removed King Saul and replaced King Saul with David from the tribe of Judah. And the Bible says that there will be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, who will reign forever. Psalm 78 is written for the purpose of instructing God's people in the history of Israel, in this history of them being messed up and not doing what is right in the eyes of God, but doing what's right in their own eyes. And so we have, for instance, this statement, Psalm 78, 8, um, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, the generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. And on and on it goes in, in chapter 78 until you get to the very last verses. And it gives the solution. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Then following the nursing use, he brought him to, the, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance, with upright heart. He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. We hear David's kingship described in 2 Samuel eight fifteen. So David reigned over all Israel, and David, David administered justice and equity to all his people. Somebody who would come and who would uphold the laws of God and who would impart and lead with wisdom. 
He would keep the people together and thriving. You know, leadership, good leadership does that. It, it, God uses leadership to, to keep things moving forward and keep things from unraveling. And somebody who would care and shepherd the sheep, someone like David. But David was not perfect. He was not the perfect king. He was not the perfect leader. All you have to do is read the accounts in Scripture. It's very upfront about that. And yet, he was a type of the one who was going to come, who would be the perfect leader. He would be the perfect king. Who is that? Jesus, our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Jesus is our shepherd. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes thousands of years before the time of Jesus Christ, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. See? The king will come. And this messed up world that we live in, and this messed up heart that we exhibit in going our own way and doing what's right in our own eyes will be something that will be done away with through the leadership of King Jesus. We need King Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of David, said of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And it wasn't simply that when Jesus was on earth in his first advent that he was king. After his death, we read this of him in Hebrews chapter 13, 20. The God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The resurrected Jesus is king. He's king of creation now. He reigns now. Ephesians chapter 1.20 says that he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand and he- at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but the age to come. He reigns now and he will reign in the age to come. And one day he will return and every, every tongue will acknowledge his rule. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 said... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he's going to return. He's going to return, and he's going to make this chaotic world right in his second coming when there's a new heavens and a new earth. We Read of that prophecy in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then the book of Revelation, near the end of the book of Revelation, looks forward to that time. Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so there's the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb, and from it, the healing of the nations will happen. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. All of us do. We need a Savior for justification. We need a Savior for being declared right in God's sight. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep, for a purpose. Isaiah 53, again, a prophecy of Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is our shepherd who's laid down his life for us because he did what we could not do, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous being Jesus, the unrighteous being you and me, to bring us to God for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid the penalty that you deserve. He lived the life that you could not live because he loved you. Your great shepherd has done that. So simply trusting in him, admitting your guilt, acknowledging your need for a savior, and turning to Jesus Christ, your shepherd and your savior. But he's also your shepherd king. And there's no contradiction between the two. There's no contradiction between Jesus being savior shepherd and king shepherd. I, I want to make it clear. Jesus did not come for the purpose of bringing you to the point of obedience such that God would accept you because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus himself is acceptable to God. And through faith in him and faith in him alone, we are acceptable to God. But if you trust in him as your savior, he also will be your authority. And that's for your own good, right? Go back to the book of Judges. That's messed up, right? Do you want that for your own life? Do you want that for our church? Do you want that for our culture? No, we do not want that. We need King Jesus. We want to be able to say more and more about my life. That's not messed up. And more and more, that's true life. That's true wisdom. That's true true life and true peace. And that happens when Jesus is our king. And we don't do what's right in our own eyes, but we trust in King Jesus. John chapter 19, 15, those that were there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ cried out, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. How sad. If they would not know him as king, they would not experience him as savior. Jesus Christ said this about himself after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Earlier in the book of Matthew, after his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds responded this way. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so we listen to the words of Jesus Christ. We listen to his guidance. We listen to his truth. We listen to his authoritative word. He's not left us without his word to follow. And we need to be honest about not following Jesus, right? We need to be honest about not following King Jesus. 
and doing what's right in our own eyes. And, and part of uh, my encouragement for you today is sort of to look at our culture around us. It's sort of the air we breathe and just look at what is current, uh, what is acceptable, and to ask yourself, is that really coming from King Jesus or is that messed up? Here's a, a simple example, um, and this was... Um, a recent, according to a recent study, more than a third of Americans believe that anyone on, social plat, on a social platform deserves any trolling they may experience. What's trolling? Trolling is an act of riling someone up online or writing offensive messages on the Internet. Researchers say that this behavior is most often done out of anger and is typically directed at politicians. One in four people in the United States believe that disagreeing with someone is a good enough reason to troll them. People think... People in the public eye that are engaging in the act of going online make you fair game for trolling, said Shane Ryan, global executive director of the Avast Foundation. The study found that about a quarter of Americans admit they are more aggressive behind a screen than they are in person. It's just the air we breathe, right? It's the culture we live in. What does King Jesus say? Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now let me just ask you, if we abided by the direction of King Jesus, his authority in this matter, and if our culture did, would we have less chaos or more chaos, right? We'd have considerably less chaos and be considerably less messed up. And so take a look and see what's accepted and and promoted in our culture and ask, what does King Jesus say about this? It might be sexual mores. It might be our approach to money. It might be self-fulfillment. What is common? What drives people? What drives people at school and our places of work? Is it a reflection of King Jesus or doing what's right in our own eyes? And we have to understand that we might have to do some digging and some uh, really work hard at self-awareness. I went out fishing uh, recently, and as is often the case when I go out fishing, I didn't catch any fish. And uh, so I was uh, on the shoreline uh, kind of waiting, and I saw these, uh, these beautiful shells. And I thought of my uh, granddaughters coming, and I thought, well, I'm going to collect some shells for my granddaughters, you know, something profitable for my fishing expedition. And, uh, and I noticed there were hermit crabs in some of these shelves. So I was very careful. I kind of turned them over and looked and, uh, and picked up the ones that didn't have any hermit crabs in them, put them in my sandwich bag. And hours later at night when I was at home, I went to clean them off and put the hot water on them uh, to clean them up. And all of a sudden, they came alive, all of them, every single one of them had a hermit crab in it. It was wedged deep down inside. I could not see it until investigating closely. By the way, I did return those to their home in the bay, uh, so they're safe and sound. But sometimes sometimes our approach of rebellion is very, very deep down inside because, again, we're in a culture oftentimes that does not have Jesus as their authority, and we need to just pay attention to the environment that we live in. I was on a canoeing trip when I was in high school. 
interesting thing, about a dozen high school students with no other uh, people chaperoning. And we were going down the Peace River. We had stopped off for some lunch, and uh, we started to get back in the canoes, and there was a water moccasin in one of the canoes. It slipped in. We all kind of came around the canoe, and there was this, we were, by the way, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, not the most outdoorsy place. And uh, there was one guy that came up, and he immediately started to reach his hand down and grab the snake. We said, whoa, 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 don't touch that snake. It's poisonous. And he said, and I quote, will it sting me with its tail? Okay. He was completely ignorant about the danger uh, that was in front of him. And I've heard, for instance, in my history classes, I think somewhere growing up, in the state of Florida, when the Spanish came, I guess it was in the 1600s, where they would play with what they thought would be corn snakes, but turned out to be coral snakes. Easy mistake to make. And as a result, some of them died, right, from making that mistake. And so we should ask ourselves, as we look at the culture around us, am I just incorporating into my life what the culture around me is doing and doing what's right in my own eyes, or am I doing what's right in the eyes of King Jesus? But as we conclude the book of Judges, I really don't want to leave us with a lot of navel-gazing, right? Because the, the solution is to look at King Jesus. The solution is to delight in his authority in obeying him. You know, as I, as I end the, the chapter, as I end this chapter, it, the, the main takeaway that I have is that obedience to Jesus is appealing. And we really don't talk about that a whole lot. We really don't think that a whole lot. I was trying to think of some analogy, right? Some illustration where we find obedience to authority as appealing. And I, I guess the closest I could come is a coach. You know, some of you have been blessed with coaches who are self-sacrificial and they sacrifice for the team and they love the team and they mentor the team and they coach the team and and, uh, men or women on the team love them back and delight in doing what they call on them to do, even if it's hard and difficult. Well, that's a pale reflection of King Jesus. But following Jesus Christ is delightful Because Jesus Christ, King Jesus, makes my life good and less like the mess of the book of Judges. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending King Jesus as the Savior of sinners. He is the good shepherd. And we're so thankful for him. We're thankful, Father, for Jesus, our shepherd, when he teaches us, when he disciplines us. Because, Father, we do not want to live our lives in the mess that we have seen demonstrated in the book of Judges. We would have him as our Savior, and we would have him as our King. We're thankful for him. We pray that by your Spirit that you would prompt us to delight in the kingship of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship our great God by singing the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Let's stand and sing.